Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 250. Today's big Bible question is all about the importance of marital intimacy. Uh oh. And should Christians aspire to be married or single? So, hello everybody. Happy Wednesday to you. Did you know that the Bible Reading Podcast is on YouTube? Yes, we are. Just search for my channel, uh, which is uh, Chase Thompson AL. Or you can come to our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com, and click on the link for today's episode. And that'll take you to our YouTube channel. And I guess you could go to YouTube and just search for Bible Reading Podcast, but I'm not sure if that'll bring it up or not. I mention this because we have a faithful listener and watcher there, where, what, huh, who leaves some great comments. So allow me to read a couple from my old friend, where, what, huh. For an episode that we did, uh, I think, three days ago on denominations, this dear brother says, Even if we were to grant ad argumentum that there are 33,000 or inflate it to 55,000 or 100,000 Christian denomination, let's even call it millions just to keep from haggling over numbers, we have one central set of doctrines. Any true Christian of any denomination will acknowledge and agree with the pre-Pauline doctrine that we see in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8, 25-28, and the Apostles' Creed. Differences within Christianity are largely on matters of governance and polity rather than doctrine. For for example, the difference between the American Baptists and its 1990s breakaway, the conservative Baptists, is the, the emphasis on missions. The American Baptists place their emphasis primarily upon domestic missions, whereas the conservative Baptists emphasize foreign missions. That's an excellent point there, where what, huh? And uh, very well said with lots of big and smart words. Good job there. And for the episode we had yesterday talking about Abigail, uh, the the wife of uh, the foolish fellow and the wife of David, ultimately, this is what where what Ha says. A side point about Abigail. She, Dave, she gave David a son, Chiliab, who is sometimes called Daniel. There was some doubt regarding the timing of the birth, and some claimed that Chiliab's father was Nabal, but Chiliab so closely resembled David that he was called the image of the father, which is what Chiliab means. He was the second born of David's sons, but he's not seen in the later palace intrigues, and despite his auspicious forebears, the handsome and heroic David and the beautiful and intelligent Abigail, he is not mentioned in the Bible aside from being noted among the sons of David. He vanishes, and his much younger half-brother Solomon ends up inheriting the throne of David. A bit of a Bible mystery. You bet it is, where what, huh? That is quite a Bible mystery. Here's the thing. Chiliab is an interesting guy. Yesterday, we went over the top four most beautiful women in the Bible. According to old rabbinic tradition, today I'll tell you that the same rabbinic tradition says that Benjamin, Jesse, Amram, and our friend Chiliab today were the only four people in the Bible that died without sinning. (laughs) Now, this is, of course, balderdash and poppycock, but it is an interesting tidbit that at least some rabbis used to believe that about Chiliab, Amrab, Jesse, and Benjamin. Well, today we're going to solve the mystery of what happened to Chiliab once and for all. I've talked to the only people in the world who actually know the solution to this puzzle, and they've authorized me to release it today to you. Now, interestingly enough, those people were higher ups in the, you know, the secret Vatican archives. 
they also clued me in on whether or not there is real alien life too. So I can share that answer today also. So here's the full story. Uh oh, hang on. One of my kids needs me. I'll I guess I'll just edit this out. Yeah, what's up? Huh? Oh, yeah, the answer is 42. Yeah, 42. Well, it's the answer to life, the universe, and pretty much everything. No, no problem. Good night. Love you. Okay, back to the show. What were we talking about? Hmm. Well, I don't remember. Oh, well, it probably wasn't too important. Today's Bible readings include 1 Samuel 26, Psalm 42 and 43, Ezekiel chapter 5, and 1 Corinthians 7. And good news, I don't think Ezekiel chapter 5 has any poop in it. 1 Corinthians 7 is an interesting passage, and that's our focus passage for today. So let's go ahead and read it together, and then we'll discuss it. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Now in response to the matters you wrote about, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife. And each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. I realize I should have uh, made this episode PG. Verse 3. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another, another, except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all people were as I am, but each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, another has that. I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it's good for them to remain as I am. But if they do not have self-control, they should marry, since it's better to marry than to burn with desire. To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord, a wife is not to leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. But I, not the Lord, say to the rest, if any brother has an unbelieving wife and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or a sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. Wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. Let each one live his life in the situation the Lord assigned when God called him. This is what I command in all the churches. Was anyone circumcised when he was called? He should not undo his circumcision. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? He should not get circumcised. Circumcision does not matter and uncircumcision does not matter. Keeping God's commands is what matters. Let each of you remain in the situation in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Don't let it concern you. But if you can become free, by all means take the opportunity. For he who is called by the Lord as a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called as a free man is Christ's slave. You are bought at a price. Do not become slaves of people. Brothers and sisters, each person is to remain with God in the situation in which he was called. Now about virgins. I have no command from the Lord, but I do give an opinion as one who by the Lord's mercy is faithful. Because of the present distress, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. 
However, if you do get married, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But such people will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. This is what I mean, brothers and sisters. The time is limited. So from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they didn't own anything. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For this world in its current form is passing away. I want you to be without concerns. The unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. The unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord so that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But the married woman is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. I'm saying this for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is proper and so that you may be devoted to the Lord without distraction. If any man thinks he is acting improperly towards the virgin he is engaged to, if she is getting beyond the usual age for marriage and he feels he should marry, he can do what he wants. He is not sinning. They can get married. But he who stands firm in his heart, who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will and has decided in his heart to keep her as his fiance, will do well. So then he who marries his fiancée does well, but he who does not marry will do better. A wife is bound as long as her husband is living, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to anyone she wants, only in the Lord. But she is happier if she remains as she is, in my opinion, and I think I also have the Spirit of God. So, long chapter. There's so much here that we can't focus on everything, but I will say that many husbands' favorite Bible passage is find, found in this chapter. And it actually bears repeating for both husbands and wives because it's written to both, not just the one. And in verse 2 through verse 5, it says, Because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another, except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, otherwise Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So I read three important principles in that little chunk of this passage. Number one, wives and husbands have a beautiful, intimate duty that they should both fulfill to each other, each seeking to meet the other's needs, not seeking to meet their own needs. Number two, depriving a marriage of intimacy exposes both the husband and the wife to temptation from the enemy for both partners. Now, I realize that men and women are different and that generally men have a greater uh, appetite than women at least stereotypically. But I know here that Paul is not saying the men will only be the ones exposed to temptations, but the husbands and the wives. I also note that Paul doesn't necessarily spell out the nature of those temptations. They could be sexual or otherwise, but the point is that regular frequent intimacy in marriage is a protection from all kinds of temptation from the enemy for both partners. This is not a passage written for husbands or to husbands. This is a passage written for married people. Number three, this one is not emphasized enough. In terms of the marriage bed, so to speak, the rights to a husband's body belong to his wife and the rights to a wife's body belong to her husband. Now, this is not an invitation for a 
abuse. This is a beautiful application of loving your neighbor as yourself. And it's also an echo from Ephesians 5, 28 and 29, which says, in the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it just as Christ does for the church. So the picture here is of a husband providing and caring for his wife intimately and she providing and caring for her husband intimately. But we aren't focusing on marriage today, but rather on singleness, because right after telling husbands and wives not to deprive each other, Paul says this, I wish that all people were as I am, but each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, another has that. Paul wishes that all people were like him. So what does this mean, Paul? You wish people were apostles? You wish people were from Tarsus? Actually, no. What he means is made clear a few verses later. For instance, verse 8 and 9. Paul says, I say to the unmarried and to widows, it is good for them to, if they remain as I am. But if they don't have self-control, they should marry. Verse 25, now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I do give an opinion as one who by the Lord's mercy is faithful because of the present distress. I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Or how about verse 32? I want you to be without concerns. The unmarried man is... a concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord, but the married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided in the same way for wives. And then we get to verse 38. So then he who marries his fiance does well, but he who does not marry will do better. So putting all of the above together, we see that Paul says over and over in this passage in a variety of ways that it is better to not get married and to serve the Lord wholeheartedly because a married man or woman has their interests divided between God and their spouse. Did you know that this was in the Bible? Let me tell you a little story that happened in a lovely church I pastored many moons ago. So, this church was filled to the brim with families and kids like there was something in the water. Love the church, love the families, love everybody involved in this story. I'm not going to name names. One Sunday, we had a single man preach, and he preached on 1 Corinthians 7, and particularly focused, not in an obnoxious way in this particular instance, he particularly focused on what Paul said about it's better to be single. Now, that's really pretty crystal clear from this passage, but I had a friend who was a father and a husband called me up and... uh a, expressed some concern about a couple of other things that was said in the message, but primarily expressed some concern about that particular aspect of the marriage, um, of the message, that he felt bad for being married, and he didn't feel like what was said was appropriate or right, because I guess he didn't want to feel bad about being married. But here's the thing. It is what it is. It says what it says, and it's really pretty darn clear. Ultimately, that family left, broke my heart. That kind of thing happens when you pastor. And you might be thinking as you're listening to me right now, hey, I'm married, and this offends me that you would even imply that I did wrong. So here's the thing, my married friend. I'm married too. I've got five kids. I know exactly what Paul's talking about in terms of having your interest divided between serving the Lord and serving your family. 
I'm not giving you my opinion either. I'm just telling you what God's word says. And also, as this is really, really important, me being married is not sin. It's not wrong. You being married is not sin. It's not wrong. This is crystal clear in this passage, and I say it for two reasons. Number one, Paul explicitly says multiple times that being married is not a sin or getting married is not a sin. For instance, verse 8 and 9, he says, I say to the unmarried widows, it's good for them if they remain as I am, but if they do not have self-control, they should marry, since it is better to marry than to burn with a desire. I can testify and say yes and amen to that, Paul. It is indeed better to marry than to burn with a desire. Or how about verse 28? However, Paul says, if you do get married, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Okay, so it's not a sin to get married. He says, but such people will have trouble in this life and I'm trying to spare you. You know what? For a single guy, and Paul, we think was single, he could have been a widow. It's possible his wife died. We don't know. But at the time he wrote this, he definitely did not have a wife. And he says, such people will have trouble in this life and I'm trying to spare you. Now, again, you might be offended at that. Paul, come on, man. Marriage is great. It is great. And it's hard. And there's trouble in marriage sometimes. And you know why there's trouble in... uh, Let me say this. Let me be personal. There's trouble in my marriage sometimes. You say, whoa, you're a bastard. Yes, there's trouble in my marriage because I'm in it. I'm usually the trouble in our marriage because I'm a sinner. And my wife's a sinner too. So there's going to be trouble in any sort of relationship because we're sinners. Verse 36, Paul says, If any man thinks he is acting improperly, Towards the virgin he is engaged to, if she's getting beyond the usual age for marriage and he feels he should marry, he can do what he wants. He is not sinning. They can get married. Okay, so we actually have quite a bit of freedom here. This is one of those unusual situations in the Bible where um, either way is, is not a sin. Also, also, his guidance in this passage might be somewhat specific to the time and focus of his writing. And I say that not because I want to be squishy with the Bible, but because Paul says in verse 26, because of the present distress, I think it is good for a man to remain as he is. So Paul might be saying his opinion, and remember, he says, I'm giving you my opinion here. It's not a command under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's saying this is an opinion. He's saying maybe it's possible saying that this opinion might be based on the current situation faced by the Corinthians and the persecution being undergone by the church in general at the time of his writing. Whether he's saying that or not, it doesn't fully matter because he's already told us multiple times, you can get married. It's not sin. If you want to, go ahead. We have that interesting situation here, a choice in which neither direction is a sin. Paul says to stay single if you can, because that's better. But if you want to get married or you need to get married because of self-control issues, hey, go ahead and get married. Now, traditionally, people in the church have looked down on singleness in a variety of ways, but we don't get that from the Bible. Instead, the New Testament gives us a high view of singleness. So let me close with some thoughts from our old friend John Piper, a married man with kids, about these principles. So Jesus and Paul and Peter all say children are born into God's family and receive their inheritance not by marriage and procreation, but by faith and regeneration, which means that single people in Christ have zero disadvantage in bearing children for God and may in some ways have a great advantage. 
The Apostle Paul was single in Christ, and he said of his converts, Though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's 1 Corinthians 4.15. Paul was a great father and never married. And let him speak for single women in Christ in 1 Thessalonians 2.7. We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So it will be said of many single women in Christ, she was a great mother and never married. And this could also be said of many women who are married but don't have children because in Christ, in the church, in the kingdom, there is a type of fatherhood and motherhood that does not come from natural means and methods, according to Paul and according to the Bible. So Piper says, take heed here, lest you minimize what I'm saying and do not hear how radical it really is. I'm not sentimentalizing singleness to make the unmarried feel good. I am declaring the temporary and secondary nature of marriage and family over against the eternal and primary nature of the church. Marriage and family are temporary for this age. The church is forever. I am declaring the radical biblical truth that being in a human family is not a sign of eternal blessing, but being in God's family is being eternally blessed. Relationships based on family are temporary. Relationships based on union with Christ are eternal. Marriage is a temporary institution, but what it stands for lasts forever. And he's referring to Matthew twenty-two thirty, where Jesus says in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Piper continues, when his own mother and brothers asked to see him, Jesus said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, Matthew twelve forty-eight through 49. Jesus is turning everything around. Yes, of course he loved his mother and his brothers, but those are all natural and temporary relationships. He did not come into the world to focus on that. He came into the world to call out a people for his name from all of the families into a new family where single people in Christ are full-fledged family members on a par with others bearing fruit for God and becoming mothers and fathers of the eternal kind. Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed, a woman cried out to Jesus. And Jesus turned around and said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. That's Luke eleven twenty-seven. The mother of God is the obedient Christian, married or single, Take a deep breath and reorder your world. Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, Jesus said, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Mark 10, 29 through 30. Single person, marriage person, do you want children, mothers, brothers, sisters, lands? Renounce the primacy of your natural relationships and follow Jesus into the fellowship of the people of God, says John Piper. And I say amen to that. God bless you, whether you're single or married. If you are in Christ, you are part of the family of God. Hallelujah. First Samuel 26, verse 1. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, David is hiding on the hill of Hakala opposite Jeshimon. So Saul, accompanied by 3,000 of the fit young men of Israel, went immediately to the wilderness of Ziph to search for David there. Saul camped beside the road at the hill of Hakilah, opposite Jeshimon. David was living in the wilderness and discovered Saul had come there after him, so David sent out spies and knew for certain that Saul had come. Immediately, David went to the place where Saul had camped. He saw the place where Saul and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of his army, were laying down. 
Saul was lying inside the inner circle of the camp with the troops camped around him. Then David asked Ahimelech the Hethite and Joab's brother Abishai, son of Zariah, who will go with me into the camp to Saul? I'll go with you, answered Abishai. That night David and Abishai came to the troops and Saul was lying there asleep in the inner circle of the camp with his spear stuck in the ground by his head. Abner and the troops were lying around him. Then Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy to you. Let me thrust the spear through him into the ground just once. I won't have to strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Don't destroy him, for who can lift a hand against the Lord's anointed and be innocent? David added, As the Lord lives, the Lord will certainly strike him down. Either his day will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. However, as the Lord is my witness, I will never lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. Instead, take the spear and the water jug by his head, and let's go. So David took the spear and the water jug by Saul's head, and they went their way. No one saw them, no one knew, and no one woke up. They all remained asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord came over them. David crossed to the other side and stood on top of the mountain at a distance. There was a considerable space between them. Then David shouted to the troops and to Abner, son of Ner, Aren't you going to answer, Abner? Who are you and who calls on the king? Abner asked. David called to Abner. You're a man, aren't you? Who in Israel is your equal? So why didn't you protect your lord, the king, when one of the people came to destroy him? What you have done is not good. As the lord lives, all of you deserve to die since you didn't protect your lord, the lord's anointed. Now look around. Where are the king's spear and water jug that were by his head? Saul recognized David's voice and asked, Is that your voice, my son David? It is, my lord and king, David said. Then he continued, Why is my lord pursuing his servant? What have I done? What crime have I committed? Now may my lord the king please hear the words of his servant. If it is the lord who has incited you against me, then may he accept an offering. But if it is people, may they be cursed in the presence of the lord. For today they have banished me from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go and worship other gods. So don't let my blood fall to the ground far from the Lord's presence, for the king of Israel has come out to search for a single flea, like one who pursues a partridge in the mountains. Saul responded, I have sinned. Come back, my son David. I will never harm you again, because today you considered my life precious. I have been a fool. I have committed a grave error. David answered, Here is the king's spear. Have one of the young men come over and get it. The Lord will pay every man for his righteousness and his loyalty. I wasn't willing to lift my hand against the Lord's anointed, even though the Lord handed you over to me today. Just as I considered your life valuable today, so may the Lord consider my life valuable and rescue me from all trouble. Saul said to him, You are blessed, my son David. You will certainly do great things and will also prevail. Then David went on his way, and Saul returned home. Psalm 42, verse 1. As the deer longs for flowing streams, so I long for you, God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I come and appear before the Lord? My tears have been my food day and night, while all day long people say to me, Where is your God? I remember this as I pour out my heart, how I walked with many, leading the festive procession to the house of God, with joyful and thankful shouts. Why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him. My Savior and my God, I am deeply depressed. 
Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and the peaks of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your billows have swept over me. The Lord will send his faithful love by day. His song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about in sorrow because of the enemy's oppression? My adversaries taunt me as if crushing my bones, while all day long they say to me, Where is your God? Why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. Psalm 43, verse 1. Vindicate me, God, and champion my cause against an unfaithful nation. Rescue me from the deceitful and unjust person. For you are the God of my refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about in sorrow because of the enemy's oppression? Send your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to your dwelling place. Then I will come to the altar of God, to God my greatest joy. I will praise you with the lyre. God, my God, why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. Ezekiel chapter 5 verse 1. Now you, son of man, take a sharp sword, use it as you would a barber's razor, and shave your head and beard. Then take a set of scales and divide the hair. You are to burn a third of it in the city when the days of the siege have ended. You are to take a third and slash it with the sword all around the city, and you are to scatter a third to the wind. For I will draw a sword to chase after them. But you are to take a few strands from the hair and secure them in the folds of your robe. Take some more of them, throw them into the fire, and burn them in it. A fire will spread from it to the whole house of Israel. This is what the Lord God says, I have set this Jerusalem in the center of the nations with countries all around her. She has rebelled against my ordinances with more wickedness than the nations and against my statutes more than the countries that surround her. For her people have rejected my ordinances and not walked in my statutes. Therefore, this is what the Lord God says, Because you have been more insubordinate than the nations around you, you have not walked in my statutes or kept my ordinances. You have not even kept the ordinance of the nations around you. Therefore, this is what the Lord God says. See, I myself am against you, Jerusalem, and I will execute judgments within you in the sight of the nations. Because of all your detestable practices, I will do to you what I have never done before and what I will never do again. As a result, fathers will eat their sons within Jerusalem, and sons will eat their fathers. I will execute judgments against you and scatter all your survivors to every direction of the wind. Therefore, as I live, this is the declaration of the Lord God. I will withdraw and show you no pity, because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your abhorrent acts and detestable practices. Yes, I will not spare you. A third of your people will die by plague and be consumed by famine within you. A third will fall by the sword all around you, and I will scatter a third to every direction of the wind, and I will draw a sword to chase after them. When my anger is spent and I have vented my wrath on them, I will be appeased. Then after I have spent my wrath on them, they will know that I, the Lord, have spoken in my jealousy. I will make you a ruin and a disgrace among the nations around you in the sight of everyone who passes by. So you will be a disgrace and a taunt, a warning and a horror to the nations around you when I execute judgments against you in anger, wrath, and furious rebukes. I, the Lord, have spoken. When I shoot deadly arrows of famine at them, arrows for destruction that I will send to destroy you, inhabitants of Jerusalem, I will intensify the famine against you and cut off your supply of bread. 
I will send famine and dangerous animals against you. They will leave you childless. Plague and bloodshed will sweep through you, and I will bring a sword against you. I, the Lord, have spoken. Lord, have mercy. Godspeed.